Hi, I'm Anna Burt, and I'm Sue's daughter. Hi, I'm Emily Benito. I'm Trudy's daughter. Though our mums are both dead, the fact doesn't change. We're both adapting to living our lives without our mums, and know we are very much not the only ones. We have joined forces to create a podcast in the hope that we can provide what we feel we needed and still need in our grief. The mothership, the mother load. There's no getting around that mother means something big. There are so many different kinds of mother, biological, step, figure, and so many different kinds of grief when they're gone. We're here to do what we can in podcast form, welcoming guests so we can explore our experiences together, where they converge and where they vary, and, hopefully, understand a little more about the nuance and scope of The The Mother mother of All Losses. Losses. Anna, how are you, my love? How's your grief today? It's bad today. It's really bad. So, you know, we talk a lot about the um, water analogy in our grief. I feel like at the moment I'm in rapids. Do you remember the rapids at your local swimming pool? So where we used to go, um, oh my gosh, it it was really fun at the time. I didn't realise it would become an analogy for my never ending grief. But um, And you go round and round and round and it's really hard to get out of them. But then there's this little like respite hole in the middle where you can go. But then you'd still have to get through the rapids to get out. And I feel at the moment really like I'm going around and around and around and I can't get out. And I think that it's so much to do with um, my grandma, basically. I can't grieve because she's not dead, but I can't not grieve her to a sense because she's really not there anymore in her head, particularly, you know, that she will never be my grandma again in the way that she was you know and I've been thinking a lot about you know the important role that she's played throughout my life which has been like really really maternal and there's so much of how I feel feels like I'm losing preparing to lose my mum again in many ways but it's also really hard because um you know I understand that she is you know by the time this comes out in theory will be 95 and People say things like, oh, she's had a long life and a good run and all this kind of stuff. But it doesn't change the fact that I still feel like that little kid that used to sit, you know, that get dropped off by my mum at her house and just, you know, sit and look out the window. And my gosh, it was all just mesmerising. And I've been thinking about all the things, you know, about why this hurts so much and why it doesn't feel like it should be happening. And but there was just so much like nurture in our relationship. And, you know, she'd pick me up from school with snacks and she'd cook for me. And she had, we had this really strong bond that I think that she felt able to have with me that perhaps she couldn't have with her own children in the context that they grew up in kind of post-war um, Britain as um, an immigrant family and all of those kind of things, um, you know, with, with the, you know, German immigrants. And I just feel like, I feel kind of like I'm living in limbo because I know that she is somewhere, you know, only two or so miles away from me living, but she's also not living. I know, you know, I just, it's it's horrible. I feel like I can't access her in any way. And, you know, there was, although, you know, seeing my mum die was absolutely awful. There was something 
I was so in it and part of it and I knew what was going to happen you know when someone has terminal cancer they tell you you know you can kind of see it and which is why hospice nurses and palliative care nurses are like these amazing kind of angels of death because they just know and they can prepare you for that in that way but I just feel like I'm living in this strange limbo I cannot help but feel that I've abandoned her which of course I haven't because there's no choice and I just feel like I'm like I'm just whirring around in these rapids and even if I feel you know okay or better and I'm kind of in the middle of them in that calm pool for a bit to get out of them I still need to get through them but I kind of can't at the moment and the support you know I have amazing support in my life but you cannot or I don't feel like I can expect anyone to kind of do it again if you know what I mean whereas I almost feel like I kind of need the same level of support but I'm not very good at asking for it and then I had this really strange thing this evening um I wasn't working today and um I was thinking a lot about my grandma and I haven't written in ages so I started doing some writing um and it reminded me um and I wanted to you know, I was just thinking about her a lot. And um, Dr. Sue is Dr. Sue because Dr. Sue, just before she died, got a PhD in creative writing. And um, I read her, I don't know what it's called, you know, the essay that goes along with it. So um, I didn't read, obviously, the novel, but I read the kind of 80 or so pages about um, the strengths and limitations of auto autobiographical fiction. And she'd written this book, which had a lot of my grandma in it. And it just made me feel like much closer to my mum and to the whole kind of situation, but then also like so deeply far away um, because I can't ask those questions. And then um, Josh got home from work and um, you know, asked if I was all right. I obviously looked a bit sad. And um, I said, you know, what I'd, what I'd done today. And he said, well, I didn't know your mum wrote. And I said, what? Of course you did. And realised that, you know, in the best part of a year that we've been together um I had hardly really talked about her in her life if you know what I mean I make reference to her often our oh, mum said that mum did that but I just and I feel shame for that which is crazy like I never thought I just always I like hadn't introduced her to him and I just wonder if so much of like the way that I go about life is just really like pushing it away often and the fact that the person that I'm like closest to that literally is with me every day didn't know so many things that I'd love him to know about my mum because it's just like I've just been getting on with living because we're kind of further down the line now you know nearly you know getting on nine years and it just felt really weird to me and really detached and this has only just happened this evening so I just feel really strange so my grief right now feels really complicated I feel like I've let my nan down I feel like I've let my mum down um in not like talking about her in in how she lived um which is kind of what we do here so kind of put my hands up <laughs> we'll do it so that's how my grief is today it's a lot <laughs> Oh, love, I'm, I'm so sorry you're in the rapids and I grew up by a swimming pool that was called Romsey Rapids. So, you know, it's the centrepiece. And I think it's, the water analogy helps us so much because I think it gets across how many forms that grief takes and I think a lot of people only see grief as the rapids. 
and we try and talk about how there's lots of different kinds. Doesn't mean it's not the rapids though. I'm sorry that it's so intense and it's so, I think also it's just physically battering, like how exhausting it is. And that limbo that you're in took me exactly back to when Truth was dying because you are fighting something that you know you can't win, but your love for that person means you will do whatever you can in, in you, you max out your power, even though you know it's a, it's a done fight. Honor, love, all of these things, all the really human things. And you absolutely haven't let your nan down or your mom down. And I know you feel that way, but really I'd say that feeling is that you feel like you've let yourself down because you love them so dearly, these women before you. There's no way that you've let them down, but it's, and grief is complicated. And I think particularly as you are further down the line from Dr. Sue dying, I'd be really surprised if anyone who loves you, including me, wouldn't understand that your grandma, when, when she dies, that that's not gonna be just as big a deal. Of course it is. I think the relationship between uh, grandparents and grandchildren is one of kind of, um, often sort of glee, because as a grandparent, you suddenly get to enjoy and be responsible to a degree that's, you know, a bit more comfortable with it. You, it it's not the terror of your, of your own child and not knowing what to do, but they're still your children's children and that kind of co-conspiratorial, like we get to have fun together and that comes across so warmly in how you talk about her. And again, like it always really fucks me off when people say like, oh, they had a good innings. I'm like, yeah, but they're still gone. <laughs> and also, you don't necessarily know that they did. Yes, in 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 time, of course. No, I'm not denying that that's old. Yeah. But it's about quality as well over quantity. And I just think that, you know, so often, you know, when people say, oh, I can't imagine, you know, I was 60 when my mom died. I can't imagine what it was like being so young. And I think, well, you had them for longer. Yeah. You know, so in many ways... You know, it's just, it, it doesn't, you know, you're in a different stage of your life, but you're even more used to them. Yeah, completely. I feel better having just said that, actually. And I think it's important to kind of be vulnerable when I feel vulnerable. I feel like someone could crack me with a look today. You know, that feeling. I feel like China about to be broken. <laughs> Fine China, 75% of the time is how I feel for whatever reason. Um, but it's all right to be fragile as long as you're not broken. Like, don't break yourself. Like, you're allowed to say, like, I'm fragile and I need, to, I need to be handled with care, including by myself. And I'm really glad that you said that as well, because I think there are these horrible reminders where we, like, and I just, do, I do this even with the living. You're all in my head. I just assume you've all met each other because I know you and talk to you. And I'm like, oh, wait, no, you haven't actually met this person or this person. And it is that kind of pain of like, when Trudes died, it was like, I kind of just want to spend the next 28 years replicating every second and telling someone how this went. And I feel like 
the sort of pressure of like my stories are never gonna match how great it was to be in her presence and that's really painful not being able to get that across to David and being like but to see the two of you in the room and to be the only kind of uh sinew joining them together it sucks there's, there's not easy ways to say this but I think also like the distance is particularly painful with with your grandma and like not having that access to her and that you're holding more of her than she seems to be holding herself and understanding carrying that but we're all here for you honestly anyone who just says oh your grandma was nine to five oh well grandparents they don't deserve your time no they don't fuck them <laughs> how is your grief um and um, for the benefit of the listener um who will have heard Em's hair journey over the last <laughs> few episodes it does now resemble a bob thank you and it looks beautiful you're so nice to me <laughs> I'm finally out of the awkward curtain stage uh we're getting there that's the thing about growth it never happens at the rate that you want it to but it is happening all the time that's what I tell myself in hair and in life um my grief you know what it's funny like I I've been more angry than anything. Like I've seen truths come to me quite a bit in meditations recently, mainly because the sort of guided meditations that I started doing often say, you know, think of someone you love and it's always her. She's the love of my life. And it's lovely to see her and she's always smiling, which is nice. But I think my anger is is not from that it's more that she feels very present and I suppose what I'm learning about myself is that I find my grief is an opportunity to connect with people like fundamentally we're bereaved and we understand that there is no substitute for the person that we've lost but you know the dead mums club the dead loved ones club bizarre club but full of brilliant intelligent lovely people I think I've just had some experiences recently that have kind of brought to the surface particularly just around when the first couple of months after Trude's died of just people who are bereaved but think they're the only people grieving interesting okay do you know what I mean it's like grief doesn't belong to you I understand entirely that you are grieving this person and your connection and relationship with that person which is totally unique you're not the only person grieving this comes to us all and again not through like any sort of intention or malice but simply a lack of kind of emotional awareness and development just treat it as like you are coming into my experience of grief not we're all sharing this together and I realize how much that fucks me off and I because I just I, I don't understand I don't understand how it can be used as something to push other people away or to refuse I don't know I'm still I'm still kind of untangling it but also like wedding preparations are starting to sort of pick up which again on one point like yay but also trying not to I don't I <laughs> I like to think I'm not being a bridezilla and I won't be, but part of me wonders. It is, of course, 
really important. That's why we're doing it. And it's going to be really meaningful. But a little bit of me is like, well, is part of you sort of not that fussed about things because it almost doesn't feel as real as it would if she were there? And it's also must be so frustrating knowing that you actually don't know, right? It could be that she'd have zero interest in it. You know, I mean, I'm sure she probably would, but or that she'd become completely obsessive over it or drive you completely mad or just be really supportive, but just not knowing. Oh, God, like you've hit the nail on the head there, Anna, as you tend to do. You're good at that. I I think I think she did. You know what? It's so funny because as soon as you've said that list, I'm like, oh, she'd be a mix of all of them. (laughs) And I wouldn't be able to tell from one moment to the next because Trude's was very like her her uh weddings to my father and my stepfather were pretty nonplussed like when she got married to my stepdad they eloped to the hard rock hotel in florida and swam with dolphins afterwards and she wore a dress butterflies on it do you know what I mean like she was very much <laughs> yeah like, oh you know, I don't mind like you know jeff who his stepdad wants to get married blah 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 i'm just doing it for him and then of course there's photos of her like crying during the ceremony i'm like yeah sure true big fighting talk um but you're right it's not knowing and 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 trying to again accept and somehow make peace with that I'm never going to know but yeah it's odd and and I just I really feel for you saying that kind of being further down the line but that still doesn't mean that there aren't going to be moments where you're like but this person is so present to me even if they're not here how, how to kind of, I don't know, just ambiently do that, like convey that to someone else. <sighs> but I'd stare wistfully into the distance, wondering if they will ever really be able to navigate the strange lacuna of grief. Shall I bring on our guest today, Em? Yes, please. I'm really excited to be joined today by writer all the way from the US, Lisa Montanaro. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Hello. Nice to be here with both of you, Emily and Anne. Lisa, how is your grief today? I bet you get a lot of pregnant pauses when you ask ask that, right? <laughs> it's like you have to do a check-in both emotionally, physically. I think it's good, meaning that I think today I'm able to think about my mother in a light way there's some levity to it and it doesn't feel as heavy as it usually does and I'm not sure why that is (laughs) but you know how it is there's some days where it feels heavy and other days where it feels a little uh, lighter and more positive so yeah I think today it's okay (laughs) which is a lovely contrast to my um to my terrible (laughs) grief today so I'm so sorry Lisa um to start off like that but it's lovely to see your smiling face um can you please introduce us to your mum and tell her how she lived tell us how she lived yes I love that question so my mother's name made a name was Carol Barone she was an Italian-American uh who lived in New York and was the middle child with two brothers she had an older brother and then a much much younger brother and she basically became the mom to her younger brother And that then became her role in life. My mother was maternal to everything and everyone, inanimate objects, (laughs) people, animals. Um, And one thing I think is really interesting is how accepting she was of everyone. She befriended 
all people took in, you know, kids that had problems with their family, uh, would sit there and talk to addicts and alcoholics and worked in a, um, a hospital setting. She had an unbelievable amount of empathy. Uh, and she could talk to anyone. Like you'd be on a bus and look back and you're like, oh, and she'd know their whole family. So she, uh, but I think what was really neat about her was she embodied warmth and strength. And not everyone has that combination. So she was very much a maternal figure, which is sort of interesting for me because I'm child-free by choice, always have been, uh, and have been a long time married to someone else that's child-free by choice. And I often wonder if that was a little difficult for her coming from this very traditional Italian Catholic family and then having her only daughter, you know, decide not to have kids. But thankfully my brother had kids. So she got to uh, have a bunch of grandchildren and niece and nephews. Um, the other thing that was interesting about her was coming from this sort of poor immigrant background and being the only female in a very traditional patriarchal sexist <laughs> setting. She didn't get to go to college and always wanted to. And so she valued education. And when I say drilled it into me, sometimes she took it a little too far. So it was, you must get an education. You must make your own money. Don't rely on anyone to support you. And, uh, and I think that was a big reason why I went to college and then law school and was first generation for that type of um, educational path. And I, I think it took me a long time to be grateful for that because sometimes I think it was too, she drove it home too much, <laughs> uh, which is interesting. Um, another thing which might sound like a silly thing to say is she was quite a large woman. She was obese by you know, BMI standards, uh, your body mass index, but she also had a gracefulness to her and always looked fantastic. In fact, this is her scarf. She, um, she was quite large and I'm a little tiny peanut. And so I could never you know share clothes with her or anything. Uh, but when she died, I took all of her scarves and jewelry, the things I could wear and then donated um, her plus size clothing to a lot of places like Dress for Success that were lacking clothing sizes like that. But it is, it was a big part of her life. She had a constant struggle with her weight, walked with a cane um, from an old injury. And so that also is sort of part of her and yet people wouldn't expect it because there she'd be at someone's wedding dancing up a storm. So it's kind of cool. She was, she was a lot of juxtapositions, yeah. <laughs> Love that. For the benefit of the listener, uh, Lisa is wearing her mother's scarf and it is, uh, what would you say, Anna? It's, it's got like a black base with lots of gold and grey and like a dark purple sort of geometric pattern and Lisa's wearing it in a really beautiful uh, sort of delicate knot. Um, uh, my audio describing uh, career is just there. <laughs> You're so right, Lisa. It's so interesting to hear about the juxtapositions because I am so drawn to stories, particularly of women, particularly of women of your mom's generation and with that background, who are so empathetic and generous and yet have boundaries, like where you're saying that warmth and that strength, because I think constantly as, as, as women in particular and how we're socialized, but wanting to care for people, but not wanting to be a doormat. I was wondering like how that kind of came through and whether that sort of you took from that as well? It's an interesting question because she often was hard on herself and thought she was a codependent in some ways. She had a drug addict brother um, and lots of other family members, lots of alcoholism and drug addiction in the family. And I thought she did a good job with it in terms of keeping up her boundaries, as you said. But I think she sometimes felt like she could have done a better job. And that's probably just that 
typical, you know, self-deprecating guilt that we get, you know, I could have done better. I feel like she was able to advocate for herself in a way that a lot of women of her generation were not, and that she made herself a wonderful career. She became a hospital administrator for dementia research, and she had no degree and basically had what you would call secretarial job, but wound up basically running the whole department. And so I think seeing that as a young woman, pardon me, as a young girl, and then being told all these messages, you don't have to be like that. Or she'd, you know, watch someone and say, you don't have to get married just to have someone to support you. I think that was really a gift that she gave me. And even, for example, when I decided that I didn't want to have children, asking me about that with really good probing questions, but trying not to uh, project her own views onto me and give me the space to make that decision. Uh, so I, I do think she, she was kind of unique and one of a kind in that way. I'm sure there are lots of other people like that, but that was my role model. So I, in a lot of ways, she was my best friend and mentor and guide and teacher. And sometimes she would often say to me, don't do what I do. Um, you know, try to, try to not do these things or try to distance yourself from these things, which is really interesting, but yet she couldn't distance herself from these things. So I would say to her sometimes, well, don't take them in again, or don't save them again. Or, you know, And she'd say, well, I'm going to take them in. I'm going to help him, but you should never do this. <laughs> sort of like, don't do as I do, you know. Uh, so I think she was not a doormat. She was definitely able to advocate for herself, but there was probably a bit of codependency that I think it was hard for her to break through. She also in some ways did not have the easiest life because of her, again, her gender and how much they um, would give um, opportunities to only men in a very traditional Italian Catholic family. And also because she was born in 46. So she was 46 to 64, the boomers. So she was very much at the beginning of that. And for someone that lived for that time period, she was really progressive in her views. So my father is gay. And most people um, don't come out as gay in an Italian Catholic New York family. And he realized this in his 20s after they were married and tried to sort of subjugate his true identity and fight it. And then eventually realized he couldn't. And they struggled with it together as a couple. Do we stay together and sort of have a marriage of convenience, keep this quiet? Uh, do we part our ways? And if so, what does that look like? And uh, he's still alive. He's actually 80 now and living in Los Angeles. Uh, and so I'm out here in California, finally living near him because I'm from New York. And I think that she handled it, the whole experience, in a way that I think most other people would never have been able to uh, live through, let alone handle it so well and with so much grace. And she gave him a huge gift by kicking his butt out. <laughs> she basically said, you know what, you need to go be yourself and you deserve to live your life and love someone that is the true gender match for your identity. And I need to be with someone that wants to be with me. And he loved her. And they both kind of said they were each other's love of their life. They were just the wrong gender. So they went through a lot back in like the late seventies when he came out. And so that was another area that I think um, totally influenced her entire personality and her being. And she didn't just have empathy for him. She had empathy for everyone. And a lot of people were very angry. You know, how could you stay with him? And how could you support this? And she said, because I love him. And this is who he is. And I want him to love who he wants to love. So, sorry. No, but no, don't apologize. It's my, like, I, I'm crying now because <laughs> Anna and I always point out how uh, the kind of 
main reason for us, like the surefire way to set us off crying is talk about kindness. And I think that's just a staggeringly beautiful act of kindness by your mum, your dad, but also to herself. Like that's so like, there is nothing but love in that action. Anna, I, I feel like I should hand over to you because the- yeah. I have a gay dad, Lisa. <laughs> for, for the listeners, my mouth is open right now. <laughs> and so much of what you said is um, is quite is 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 obviously different in, in everyone's own experience, but that it, it can be. But but that love, it really is present. And my parents were best friends. And the difference is, is that she knew he was gay when she married him. They just kind of fell for each other, regardless of their gender, if that makes sense. Wow. Um, and now that she's died, he he does live as a gay man. And I just that warmth that so many people, when you say that, the the their go-to reaction is that kind of shock that just comes with, oh my gosh, how disruptive for a family. But what you've just described and how I feel it actually adds so much warmth. And I know that, you know, I had a better upbringing having my dad as my dad. And I'm sure, you know, that gift that your mum gave to your dad by kicking him out was so kind to both you and your brother because that showed him, you know, that love takes on many forms and that it isn't just having to stay together, especially with the Catholic expectation um, and the stigma around divorce. And I just think that's so beautiful and it really fills my heart. Wow, that is really neat that we have that in common. And, you know, I know you, but I didn't know that. So that is just uh, pretty amazing. I love when those little serendipitous things happen and you're like, yeah, yeah, it's really neat. And, and it, is, it is an act of kindness, as you mentioned. And I think that most people would see it that way. But as you mentioned, Anna, some people just don't get it. And that's fine. They don't have to. <laughs> Everyone, every person's different. Every family is different. Um, and it's taken me a long time to sort of unpack how powerful and how kind what she did is, was, pardon me, was, because it was in the past. Yeah. And and I'm sure at the time, you know, I was there. It was extremely painful for her. Don't get me wrong. And uh but, but she always was clear on what she was doing and why she was doing it. Uh, and it worked out really well because they did stay very, very good friends for years and both went on to have other relationships. And so, yeah, it, it did work out for them, which is great. And it sounds like it worked out for your parents also, which is phenomenal. Absolutely. There's so much to be said for it, for kind of going against the grain of it, I think, and, and, and really just owning those decisions that you make whether it's to be with them or not to be with them um Lisa I'd love to hear a story about your wonderful mum you paint such a vivid picture and I'd love to get into knowing more about her life oh let's think a story a story um I think it's more of an anecdote so she had a fun phrase that she used that was really code (laughs) here's what I mean by this Let's say she had a waiter who was very, very young and it would have been inappropriate for her to think that they were hot, right? She would say over and over, like as the waiter would come to the table, oh, he's a doll, such a nice, nice, you know, waiter, such a nice person, what a doll, you know? And it it didn't dawn on me until, you know, years later and I was already dating my now husband who was my boyfriend at the time. And he said to me once he leaned over, he goes, 
she thinks he's good looking or she thinks he's cute or she thinks he's hot. And I'm like, what? Get out of here. You know, he's, he's young. You know, that's crazy. She's just being nice. She's just being Carol. You know, that's who she is. And he was like, mm, no, no, that's code. That's, you know. <laughs> and I started paying more attention and finally realized he was right. He was like, oh, he's a doll. And it was her way of saying like, hamana, hamana. He's a hot mom. But she didn't want to say it because here she was, you know, usually double his age. And I noticed she didn't say it for anyone her age. Like she wouldn't look at an adult like Pierce Brosnan and be like, he's a doll. She would just say like, Ooh, he's gorgeous. You know, but when it was a younger man, she'd use that code. He's a doll. And I just thought it was so funny to look back now. <laughs> Carol. Saucy. A little cougar, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me laugh so much, Lisa, because I remember my mom saying once that her absolute downfall would be the matron in an all boys boarding school. <laughs> And again, she was totally appropriate. You know, she would talk to everyone, and but that was just her little sort of code. And I don't even know if she knew it. I never even like called her on it. Uh, but you know, years later, I thought about it. And I'm like, okay, that is funny. That was her tell. <laughs> that was kind of her tell, you know. Um, but it is kind of funny to look back now because I think at the time it didn't dawn on me. And then when Sean brought it up, I was like, what? No. And then I'm like, oh my god, you're right. <laughs> exactly what she's doing you know is cute Lisa I would love to know a bit about um how you and your brother kind of interpreted your grief and kind of dealt with it and if that was in different ways or and if you think that was because of your different relationships or, or anything else I'd just love to know how you how you took it differently Michael is my brother. He's older than me by about two years and we're pretty close. Uh, we don't live in the same place anymore. He's in Connecticut. I'm in California, but we were always pretty close. It was just the two of us. And when my dad left, even though we would see him, you know, the typical sad weekend dad visits and all that. <laughs> um, but we were pretty close and my mom would call us the three musketeers and he was pretty close to her also. So when she, my mom got sick, unfortunately, with pancreatic cancer, and it was both extremely fast and extremely slow. And anyone that's lost anyone knows what I mean by that. Whether you, my husband lost his mom when he was 18, and then I lost my mom when I was 41. So later in life, but still what I would consider young by most people's standards. And, um, and she had a 16 month battle with cancer and I watched her both sort of deteriorate before my eyes, but yet I also felt like I blinked. And I know you both know what I mean by that because you've been through it, you've been through loss. Um, so when she was sick, what was interesting about my brother was how sort of matter of fact he was about it, but not in a like unemotional or like a, not in a way that was emotionally unattached, but just coming to terms with it. And um, I remember we went out to the diner once when we were visiting her at the hospital when we really knew she was dying. And he just said to me something so profound because he's not a very religious person at all. I don't even think I would really call him spiritual, but he just said, well, I know that she's gonna, going to be with me even when she goes to this other phase or whatever this whatever death is that most people believe in. He said, would I, do I want her here? Absolutely. But I know she's going to be with me forever and I, and I have no choice. And I was like, okay, well, I'm fucking mad. Sorry. <laughs> so, you know, and I'm like losing my best friend and losing my first love, which I remember when I said that to my husband, I said, oh, I've been in love before. <laughs> we met when we were 19. He's like, okay. I'm like, no, well, my mother was my first love. And at first he looked at me and then I explained it to him. He's like, oh, I get it. You know? So 
I wouldn't say I was closer to her, but we did have, we did have a different relationship than my brother and she had. And um, he just was more accepting of it, to be fair. And uh, I raged uh, for a while. Um, and I just felt really cheated for her. So I think I had more empathetic grief. Like I kept having visualizations of what she would have lived. So it wasn't my grief, if this makes sense. It was about what she was going to miss out on. And I couldn't get past that as easily as I could get past my own grief. My own grief is about me, you know, which is a very narcissistic grief. But the grief for her was I would visualize like her retiring after all years of working and, you know, just being able to experience things that she wanted to experience. And that would make me mad. So I guess my brother just was a little more at peace with it and a little more matter of fact. But also, to be fair, my brother is a little more of a very direct matter of fact person. So that's kind of his personality. He is very what you see is what you get <laughs> um, in a refreshing way. So I think. Um, I think that was the way he handled it. After she died very quickly, unfortunately, my stepfather, who she was living with at the time, needed to move. So we had to physically go through her things. And it was probably, when I say short, like within a month or two, if I had to remember, you know how sometimes you can't remember those things because you're in that weird grief fog. Um, and that was both extremely cathartic in a lot of ways and extremely difficult, like physically going through someone's entire life possessions right after you lost them. So I tried to tell myself that this would be a good experience to sort of remember all of these things, but that they're just things and that I should just take a few things to capture the essence of who she was. And my brother was there for all of that. My stepfather couldn't handle it. He was a mess. He literally like left the space. But my brother was very much a doer. And so I think that having that sort of what you see is what you get direct personality was actually helpful in that moment because he was able to go into action mode, if that makes sense, and not fall apart. Oh, you're making perfect sense, Lisa. I, I relate to so much of what you just said and I hadn't conceptualized it in that way before, but you're totally right. Like there is the grief of our loss, but then there is grieving their loss of no longer living and, and feeling how much more they wanted to do and that's something that I have a lot with with truths is that it sounds silly to say like oh they really wanted to stay alive but like she really did she had so much more that on her like never-ending to-do list that she wanted to do but I love what you said there in terms of how um different um forms of grief are really helpful and different styles of grief are really helpful and can be really complementary with each other um because like you say it's not without feeling it's not without bond it's not without care right but sometimes you need someone who understands to go kind of hold you in some kind of discipline and give you structure if you if you've completely lost yours and it's lovely how it can kind of ebb and flow between you and you can encourage like no you can get angry about this and then they say you can get calm about this as much as I know I was quite sounding quite angry at the beginning in terms of different styles of grief I'm very much an advocate for like there's lots of different styles of grief and it's about adding more paints to your palette in, in terms of expressing it um yeah and I guess that's sort of a segue into our next question which is you sort of spoke a little bit there about 
you know, going through physically through um, Carol's things, but what else kind of helped and didn't help in your grief and continues to help and continues not to be so helpful? There were two things that were really, really helpful. One was two words that a really close friend said to me, and I will pass them on because they were brilliant. I didn't want to go to a holiday right after my mom died. My mom died February 25th, 2010. So I'm coming up on the 12th anniversary. And I don't, I think it was maybe Easter, you know, something. And I was sitting on the couch, you know, blowing my nose. And and a lot of people will say that about six months after a loss, you get physically sick. You feel like you have a cold or a flu. And I remember talking to someone, a bereavement counselor about this, and she said, absolutely. The body starts to break down, gets sick, and then comes back. And so wherever, whenever it was, I was feeling sick. And I said, I don't want to go to this thing, whatever. And I was talking to one of my best friends, Tracy, and she said, free pass. You get a free pass right now. You get a free freaking pass on anything and everything you want. Like Everyone's always looking for an excuse. You have it, like free pass. And it was just so, it sounds so silly, but it was so freeing because I went, oh my God, you're right. My mom died. I don't want to go. And it was a gift, um, but it was a gift she gave me that I then took on myself. And so I'm not saying I used it all the time, but it was really, really nice. So that was really helpful to say, do I want to use my pass for this? Do I want to use my pass for this? Um, and being able to do that. And the other thing um, that was really, really helpful uh, was writing. So I've been writing since I'm a kid. I kept a journal by longhand since I'm eight years old. I still have them. They're all in like Tupperware bins. And, <laughs> um, and I started writing. I blogged about the experience of going through my mom's things. Um, I would write, uh, I wrote the eulogy for her memorial service, which was a really wonderfully cathartic and tried to add some funny stories in there about oh yeah one was about how my brother and I would sneak cigarettes and she just knew constantly so we would do everything to cover them up you know perfume gum this whatever and we would just come inside she's like oh gross could you stop doing all the cover-up stuff because that's worse than cigarettes she had a she had a nose of like a bloodhound you know uh so it I did the the eulogy. So the writing was really helpful. I wrote a lot about the experience. And here we are 12 years later. And I had started a memoir before she passed away, you know, not even knowing she was ever going to be sick or die. And then I slowly, and I heard one of your other podcast guests, she's phenomenal. I apologize, I can't remember her name, but she had a, a book that came out that she fictionalized based on her mom's death. And the book that I'm hoping to query and publish in the next year is um, loosely based on my parents' story, which I shared with you earlier. And that was also both one of the most difficult, it was like going through therapy over and over and over, but then exercising it. And then what's beautiful about it is it became its own new thing that now is an emotional truth, but no longer the factual truth and has become its own story and lives outside of uh, me. So that was really, also helpful was just writing and writing and writing. <laughs> um, and I, I think that's what you asked was how, how I processed the grief, yeah. And I think that's it, free pass for me and writing. <laughs> and is there anything, Lisa, that really stuck out as just being really unhelpful and not working for you? Yeah, and it's funny, even thinking about it, I, I wanna cry. I don't know what it was, 
but I did a lot of business travel. Uh, I do coaching, consulting, and speaking, and I would not now during the pandemic, but at the time I was on a plane a lot. And I noticed that I would get up in the air, something I love to do. And it was this weird limbo place where I wasn't sure if I was still tethered to the earth or I was in some purgatory heaven. And, and I would sit on the plane and cry for hours. Like I would just feel the loss. It was the strangest thing. I don't know if it was leaving my life and all of a sudden having this space. Um, it would happen if I went into a hotel room alone. I would get into the hotel room and I would turn off the light and I would go, mom, you know, it was just, and it was both good and bad. It was almost like I felt her with me, but I also very strongly felt her loss. And then my husband would feel so bad because even if we went on holiday on a vacation, we'd come back and I would think she was alive and just waiting back at her house. And I would just kind of call her when I get home. And so things that I love were traveling and all of a sudden they were kind of ruined for me. Um, cause I felt so lonely. Like I remember once sitting on a plane with my husband, who's so wonderful. And he was like, are you okay? And I could not stop looking out the window and thinking, am I in heaven? Am I near her? It was just a weird feeling. I'm not sure how to explain it. I don't know if I've ever talked to anyone about it. To be honest, I don't know if anyone else has ever felt it, but it eventually passed and maybe other people feel it. I do remember the other thing was something that brings me great joy is doing yoga and I would go to yoga. And at the end, when they do the relaxation, I would always visualize her and think I was with her ball, like a baby, like a freaking idiot, like on my yoga mat, crying, snot, you know, and the yoga instructor would say, it's okay, let it out. Maybe that's what you need. But then I would come back. I would now come back into my body, which was a motherless existence. And then I didn't want to like leave the yoga mat. So I even stopped doing yoga for a while. So that was just so weird. Things I really loved doing were harder than other things. Lisa, such an incredible answer to that question because I don't think, Anna, correct me if I'm wrong, we've actually had someone talk about something that isn't necessarily what other people do or, or misunderstand about grief. Like, I've, I'm so struck by your answer, Lisa. It's really beautiful and, like... I totally get what you mean. I remember being, um, I think there's something about a plane and I don't think it's just because Trudes was an air traffic controller for a very long time. <laughs> she was. Oh yeah, so RAF was like, it was It was wild. It was like, okay, so there's train spotting and then there's plane spotting. And my mum would literally just like sit there and then we were like going on trips and be like, oh, uh, like, and then say like the serial number of a plane or something. And I'm like, oh my God, like it's like never left her. But I think there's something very physical about being in a plane, which is the sensation of a force that is greater than you picking you up and holding you. And I find that so incredibly maternal. The first plane I went on after the died, I was like, oh my God, it goes right to that bit because all I wanted was something bigger than me to take, take me up and carry me away. And it was really beautiful, but also like exactly that kind of like, oh God, I wonder how many like um, air stewards, um, like flight attendants see people, they must see people cry like on the reg, because I think there is something about that that just brings it to the surface. And again, with meditation, as I was saying like earlier, um, she's coming to me a lot in, um, in meditation is truths, but we studied uh, transcendental meditation together just before she died. 
and I just couldn't do it every time I did it it was it went right to the rawness and what you said about coming back to sort of the reality of a motherless existence oh my god like the moments where I'd feel like pretty blissed out this is good because of course when you're trying to sort of like put yourself down lower in the mix (laughs) it's not like you forget but it's just you can kind of blunt the edges of it a bit and then to come back into that is like okay here's the pain again oh Lisa what an incredible I, I hope you're able to sort of feel some yoga again now I have I have been for years now it, um and I I hate when people use that little phrase like time heals all wounds I'm like shut up um but distant time temporal distance changes things it doesn't heal it changes grief um so yes I I can do yoga now and now I just go to Hawaii <laughs> like in my head I'm just like you know, there's a waterfall and yeah, and I, uh, I'm with her in other ways. So yeah. <laughs> I wish, um, I wish I could take that up and just go, why <laughs> that sounds delightful. I, <laughs> I really relate. I'm, you know, I won't speak too much on it, but I, I remember, um, I'd had to get, I couldn't drive at the time my mom died and I had to get a lot of trains and just that like being somewhere, but nowhere. It's a bit, it's a bit like the grieving thing on your way somewhere, but you know, and you know where it is, but it's not going to be the same. And knowing that she's not oh my gosh like for years you know whenever I'd come back from anywhere you know to go and see my dad I just kind of think she was gonna be there and oh I still dream about it you know that is I just don't think that goes I think that expectation it's like losing a limb um Lisa what haven't we asked you that you'd like to talk about in a good way I can't really think of anything that you haven't asked me that I'd want to um mention and I think that's a good thing Uh, actually there is one and um, I think I mentioned that my husband lost his mother young and so I met him one year after he lost his mother I never got a chance to meet her and which was really sad but he then had my mother for longer than he had his own mother and I think what was helpful to me was and I heard I think it was you no actually I think it was you Anna where you were saying you haven't really fully filled in your partner on um, your mother. And my cousin lost her sister, who was also my cousin. And my cousin talked about that. She said, it's so weird when I'm with people who didn't know Lori. And I remember saying to Sean sometimes that there's this whole person that lived, your mother, that I never got to know. And, And so the fact that he did know my mother and didn't just know her, but loved her as a mother, and had all these shared experiences, I think was really helpful to me when I was grieving. And I was trying not to engage in uh, something that I talk about with my clients, actually conversational narcissism. And I think Emily, you kind of hit upon this earlier, that sort of grief ownership of like, instead of giving a support response where you shift the response and then you're like, oh, I know you lost some, but did I tell you what happened when my dad died? Or you know, And people don't even realize they're doing it and they think they're doing it to connect. But sometimes you're like, shut the hell up. I was talking about my grief. <laughs> this is about me. you know. Um, and we were able to sit in that grief together of losing my mom together. And I, I think that was really helpful to me. And I don't think I realized how helpful it was until you both brought up uh, those issues earlier. Um, he's a wonderfully empathetic, compassionate person. So I think it, he still probably would have been able to support me. But he did something I think that was really powerful, which was support me and share 
knowing Carol himself and not shift it to his own former grief. Oh, that's the that's the good stuff right there. That I mean, that's tr- that's tremendous. Sorry, I just like you. Make, you can maybe tell what I feel like I'm lacking a little bit <laughs> at the moment. Oh, actually, I have one last question. If that's okay, Lisa, like I, I uh, Italian foods, one of the best foods on the planet. Did did Carol have like a go to like Italian New York mama recipe that was just like primo? She was such an amazing cook. Um, and it's funny that I haven't brought that up yet because most people that knew her, that would be one of the first things they brought up was food, food, food. She showed love by feeding everyone. And she made, you know, the best meatballs, the best spaghetti meatballs and um, just all sorts of amazing Italian dishes. Um, she made something that uh, is supposed to be pronounced pasta fagioli, but most New Yorkers butcher it and they pronounce it pasta basil, um, or because it comes from the Sicilians and they drop all the vowels. And, but she made the best. And I tried to get some of her recipes, but a lot of Italian women won't write them down. It's like, no, you just watch me and I just throw it in a little of this. They don't measure anything. So I did try to get some of those. And in the novel that I wrote, that's loosely based on my parents' story, um, the pivotal scene has to do with um, spaghetti and peas, which was one of her big flagship dishes. But it's not it's not a good scene, meaning the book is very dramatic. It's not a comedy. Uh, there's all sorts of drama and trauma in the book. <laughs> so if you love family drama, family sagas, you'll like it. Um, but spaghetti and peas winds up on the wall. Who threw it and why? You'll have to read the book to find out. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I also, pasta and peas is one of my um, go-to working from home meals, but it's probably nowhere near like Carol's. Mine's like a bit of, butter, <laughs> a bit of salt and pepper, a bit of olive oil. Um, I love that you love pasta and peas. That's awesome. Yeah, I think maybe that we're kind of like, I'm seeing all these kind of weird, funny links between us and it's very lovely. I know, we're going to have to hang out some more. I like it. (laughs) Really, just take, well, we'll meet in Hawaii. (laughs) Okay, that sounds good. (laughs) Uh, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us on The Mother of All Lusters today. It's been such a pleasure. Um, It's felt really I feel like a different person now from the beginning of the recording and I think it's important to say that too that like we get so much from our guests so thank you so much for sharing Carol with us this afternoon. Thank you so much, mille grazie and uh, it has been an absolute pleasure. I love the podcast, I've listened to a few episodes in the last few days and uh, just have spent some time and you're giving yourselves and everyone else such a gift by having this by holding a space for people to talk about um, this experience in a very subjective way, but then there's a universality to it where we all go, yes, that, yes, that. So uh, it's it's a gift. So thank you both. Thank you for having me. Oh, Lisa, thank you. And th- that's exactly why we want to do it. So yeah, thank you. Sorry, I always get really, I'm, I'm completely incapable of taking a compliment because I'm still English after all. Um, <laughs> She's an English comedian. It's like the worst level. It's like the worst. Okay. Worst combination. But it was an absolute pleasure to be introduced to Carol. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Mother of All Losses podcast. This episode was produced by Chris Thorburn. 
Music by Kane Aris, who can be found at Atom Collection 2 on SoundCloud. With huge thanks to Hannah Trevathan. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on themotheroflosses at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, take care of yourselves and your grief.